I'm El Kamihira, and thank you for listening to Subject to Power. I feel we can't talk about male power without talking about war and war making. But as my guest today, award-winning political science and gender scholar Cynthia Enloe will tell you, war making is a much bigger enterprise than just the actual war part. Cynthia studied militaries all over the globe, and in particular the relationship between women and military. We may think of war as a male undertaking, and it's true that most militaries are mostly men, but women are always part of the calculation. And Cynthia spent many years discovering and analyzing how that plays out in society and in our private lives. I wanted to start with just kind of asking, how did you come to military, national security, international security to begin with? I started out as somebody who taught about and did research about multi-ethnic societies, especially in Asia. Now, I was studying. I was at Berkeley. I was right in the middle of the civil rights movement and racist backlash. And so I, I was very aware of the indigenous rights movement in the U.S. But my focus was Asia. I began also having friends who studied militaries in Africa, and they would tell me the ethnic identities of the men in particular militaries who were performing coup d'etats, that is, using military power to overthrow the civilian government in Ghana, in Uganda. But they didn't write about it. At that point, I was seeing ethnic divisions everywhere. And so I thought, well, I'll watch the ethnic makeup, not just of people who perform coup d'etats, I'll start looking at ethnicity and racism in all militaries and see what I find. This is before I'm a feminist. So I was never an anti-feminist. I was just dumb. I just didn't ask any gender questions, you know. It's always good to admit when you were dumb so you can be curious about why you became a little more undumb. So I spent about seven years, L, looking at the histories and the current politics of race and ethnicity inside the U.S. military, the Canadian military, the then Soviet military, the Ugandan military, the Philippines military, the Brazilian military, you name a military. And I could tell you who was in the Air Force and who was in the Navy and who's excluded. And at the end of this, this is all to answer your question. I was doing the index for this book called Ethnic Soldiers. It was my last, I didn't know this, but it was my last non-feminist book. You don't know that you're writing your last non-feminist book, but anyway, it was. And if you do your own index, which is a big, big job, you learn a lot about what you've just written. And one of the things you have to decide is, you know, what will be a main topic? Will it be Native Americans or Indigenous people? Will it be under N or I? And will you put Navajos under there or will Navajos also be under Ns? So you have to make all, it's very political. And at that point, I began, I had feminist friends and I was reading Adrian Rich, but I also had feminist activist friends in Europe and in the US. And I realized that I wasn't writing a book they would find interesting. And I had this, you've probably had this with the films you've made. You begin to fantasize really like a nightmare of somebody you really think highly of in terms of their political consciousness. And you think they will watch your film and they'll say, 
oh my God, she doesn't even get it. So I imagined somebody would pick up this book, Ethnic Soldiers, which I had spent seven years. I learned a lot about racism, ethnocentrism, but I didn't have any women in the book because, of course, militaries are made up almost entirely of men. So here's my fantasy, my nightmare. Adrian Rich would be in a bookstore and she would see this book and she'd just pick it up to figure out whether it was a book she wanted to buy. And I, by that time, had enough feminist friends to know what they did. They went to the index and they looked under the W's. And if there is nothing under W's except war and Walloons, Adrian Rich in the bookstore would mean she'd put it back down, close the book and think, forget it. So anyway, so at the last minute, I thought, well, maybe I did write about women. Maybe I just didn't even know. And I did find that after World War I and World War II in the W's, that I had put in women twice, twice. I had two pages where I'd mentioned them. So anyways, but I got really interested and I started looking at the history of women in militaries. For the first time ever, I started looking at the history of women as nurses in war, women as prostitutes in war, women as wives of soldiers in war. This first book was that I looked at these things was called Does Khaki Become You? And but that really set me off. I found you get so interested and you realize, okay, this project has to have an end. But I have so many things now I have to explore. But the other thing that happened is looking particularly at women as women who were married to men in some country's military. Because this isn't just about the U.S. My interests are always in many countries, including the U.S. I realized, so how do you persuade a woman who marries a man who either is drafted or has voluntarily enlisted, or you marry him when he's already in the military, how do you persuade yourself that this is the life you want to lead? Because being the wife of some government's male soldier puts you under the thumb of an entire bureaucracy that has an agenda for you as a wife. And it's hard enough to be this thing called a wife anyway in any society, giving marriage laws and employment laws and custody laws and divorce laws. It's hard enough to be this thing called a wife, which is something I would never, ever want to be. But how do you persuade yourself that it's a good thing to be the wife of a male soldier whose government, in addition to all the other things that civilian wives have to deal with, has this whole agenda for you because you're married to one of their men, one of their soldiers, and they use their, meaning their own. That, even more than all the other things I explored in that first feminist book, I began thinking about, oh, you have to militarize that woman. You have to persuade her that what she thinks is in her best interest is the thing that the government needs her for its military purposes. That is, and I began using the word, you have to militarize her. Not that she's ever going to carry a gun or ever wear a uniform, but you've got to change her sense of herself. You've got to persuade her that her being a good wife, that that being a good wife 
is going to take the form of doing things that the government wants you to do for their soldier. So, for instance, how do you militarize a woman who is married to a government soldier? You have to persuade her, for instance, that her husband being gone for a long time on maneuvers or training or going fighting some war, all those things, that you can cope with it. And you'll learn how to repair the furnace. You'll learn how to pay the bills. But of course, you also learn how to be a married woman who's essentially a single mother. And you will not complain because you'll persuade yourself that you are helping the government protect the country. Now, you're not in the military, but you persuade yourself and you persuade other civilian women who are in your situation that you're doing it as a patriot. Well, that's militarizing marriage, but it's militarizing individual women so that they have as their own values, the values of a war waging government. The government has to persuade you that your own well-being and your own values and your own goals are their goals, are their values, are their agenda. And you have to do it in a way the woman who is married to the soldier doesn't feel oppressed, but feels proud. That's the militarization of a wife. It is not about militarizing somebody who wears a uniform. It's militarizing a civilian. I would love for you to talk about why it is so important to do a gendered analysis of militarization. And wars. And wars. All of those things. Well, I think because militarization of a man is not the same as the militarization of a woman. In lots of different cultures, including our own, of course, to militarize a society, and this is done not only by officials, it's done by media editors and producers, it's done by entertainment executives, it's done by religious clergy people, that is the belief that the military is the most important part of your government, to believe that soldiering makes you a first-class citizen, that the use of violence is crucial for the safety of civilians. That's all military. That it doesn't happen in the same way for women as for men. So take this marriage, the 21-year-old woman and the 21-year-old man, and he's in the military, and the woman who's married him is a civilian. She is a civilian, but she persuades herself, and her husband hopes she'll be persuaded because the marriage will fall apart if she's not persuaded that she will take on these loyalties, these duties, these way of living her life, being a single mother for large chunks of time. It only happens if, as we're trying to understand this, if you understand how gendered marriage is. To be a wife is not to be a husband in most societies. And that's not just in terms of what your parents expect of you as a wife versus as a husband. It is what your government has written into law about what it means to be a wife versus what it means to be a husband. In China and in Britain and the U.S. and in South Africa, so much of women's movements over the last 150 years is being able to roll back all the restrictions that governments put on these people called wives. Can they inherit? Can they move without their husband's 
permission? Do they own property? And so to militarize a woman is different than militarizing a man. And so it means that I realized, because think how dumb I was, you know, for a long time and didn't ask these questions. I'm trained as a political scientist. So allegedly, I'm a specialist in power, especially public power. Well, there I went. This was maybe, it's really embarrassing. This is probably my sixth book. And I hadn't, I hadn't asked any gender questions, which I now realize now it meant that I didn't know how power worked. And I didn't know what kind of power was used on which people, for what purposes. Because I had left marriage to the sociologists. Oh, that's what sociologists and anthropologists do. And I had realized, well, it meant I didn't even understand politics. I didn't understand the extent to which the Pentagon really is nervous about women as civilian wives of soldiers. They're very nervous about them because they can't really control them, although they try very hard to. So I had underestimated the extent, the extremes that they would go to try and control those civilian women. And that meant that as somebody who supposedly was a specialist in the workings of public power, I completely underestimated power. You also say that new realities emerge when you ask about gender and how important it is to kind of look at micro experiences in families and communities and between people. And you also said something very interesting. I thought, you know, there are not parents, there's mothers and fathers, and there are no children, there are boys and girls, because that is how distinct our lives are shaped by our gender. And you do tell a story about the radio in an Afghani home, which I would love for you to tell and also explain why it's so significant. So now I'm talking about around 2008, 2009, in the middle of the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan. And this very smart group of media specialists decided that they wanted to see sort of how radios were actually being used in remote rural villages. Now, this is at a time, we all know now, how much organizing Afghan women have been doing in the middle of these wars. And one of the great creative efforts by Afghan women's rights activists was to create radio programs for women and girls about their rights, the idea that they have rights, because the Afghan constitution was rewritten and it was rewritten in a way that recognized women's rights. So there are all kinds of radio programs that were being developed by Afghan women for especially rural Afghan women who oftentimes couldn't go very far from their homes. So radio was going to bring to them something that didn't require literacy. This is why radio is so powerful. So this group of researchers, they went to a remote village in Afghanistan where there was maybe one radio for every three households. Here's what they found. Yes, there was a radio in a family household. But what they found was that the radio was gendered because there were still these great programs coming from Kabul about women's rights, but the radio was probably the most valuable thing in the household, which meant the man controls it. And so it was put on a high shelf. A woman was never allowed to touch it. Be like 
nowadays, if you get the fanciest new high-tech power mower for the grass, saying, don't you dare touch that. So the woman never touched it. She could dust it, maybe, but not touch it. And the kids couldn't touch it. Forget about all that great children's programming coming out of Kabul, because it was so valuable that only the most powerful person in the impoverished household could touch it and take it off the shelf. That's the adult man in the household, the father. But also, he is the only one who could turn it on. And he only chose the stations that he wanted to listen to. It's his property. He, they found, wanted to listen to programs about news, capital N, news, not health and childcare, certainly not women in the law, because what they found was, this is just gender analysis at its best, what they found was that for the men of the household to be informed about the world, the bigger world, gave you authority. And this is how patriarchy works. If you can domesticate women, you can claim that they only know about the confines of their house. They don't know about the capital W world. That's men's business. The other thing they found out was that the men in the household, they earned prestige amongst the other men in the village, many of whom didn't have a radio. So they carry the radio outside and the other men in the village would come and they would all listen together. It was like the pub without the liquor. It's how men reinforce with each other their standing, but also their authority. And authority comes from claiming knowledge. And so women never heard those great programs that the women in Kabul were creating for them. And that's doing a gender analysis of a radio. In the book, I think you call it the masculinization of importance. Can you talk a little bit about that and also why it is so important to kind of look closely at masculinity, study masculinity? Well, I think one of the things I learned is I learned to watch how things happen over time. That's why I don't just talk about militarism, a package of ideas, just like capitalism or socialism or fascism, a package of ideas. That's important. And I try to constantly unpack the package of militarism. But I'm really interested in militarization. I'm really interested in how the 19-year-old civilian girl gets married to the male soldier and by the age of 23 has become militarized in her notion of being a good wife. I, I want to watch things over time. So I'm very interested in isations, all kinds of isations. And I'm also interested in masculinization. How do you take something that used to be done mainly by women and transform it, also give it higher pay, transform it, so that it becomes masculized. And one of my favorite examples of the masculinization of something at first was done by women was programming for computers. Because the first programmers of the first computers in the 1930s and 40s were women because the men who invented that, well, it wasn't all men, 
the men who controlled the invention, that's different, of the computer, they thought programming was like being a secretary. That was the analogy they made. And that analogy was a feminized analogy. The person who will be good at it, and we won't have to pay her much, because we don't pay secretaries much, will be the women who do secretarial work. So the first programmers were women. And then in the 60s, 70s, and by the 90s, programming looked as though, oh, well, actually, you could have a lot of influence. You could make a lot of money off of programming. It's too important for those secretarial clerical women. It's much too important to leave it to the girls. And so bit by bit, programmers became masculinized. That is, to masculinize something is not just to fill the job or the role with men. It's to imagine that only people that have masculine attributes, only they would really be the best programmers. So now you have women trying to break into programming when in fact they were the original programmers. So it's watching something over time. In banking, in the history of banking, the first bank tellers were men because you handled money and you dealt with the public. And it was an inside job, meaning you had an office job, which all of a sudden gave you more class status. So it was an inside job. You handled money and you dealt with the public. So obviously it's something only men could do. But then the bankers who were trying to maximize their profits, they thought, well, you know, if we could turn bank telling into something that looks not very important, that looks more like secretarial work, we could pay them less. Hmm. And that led to the feminization of bank telling. One of my favorite documentaries of all times is the Wilmar 8. Wilmar is a small town in northern Wisconsin, and it's about five women bank tellers in the branch bank in Wilmar, Wisconsin, get the idea that they are not paid enough. Because what they see is that every time they train a young guy to be a bank teller, he's promoted really quickly. And before you know it, he's the branch manager over you who trained him. Well, that's how you sustain the feminization of bank telling. You do train some men to be bank tellers, but you make sure that they go up the ladder really fast and get away from the bank teller. So that's feminization over time. And masculinization also happens over time. They can both be stopped. They both can be reversed. One of the things I like about, look out because I'll go off on my rant here. Um, you know, I am a little evangelical, I have to admit. You know, But one of the things I like about isations, watching things over time as processes, is that it means you can stop it. You can reverse it. If you just talk about patriarchy or just talk about militarism, it looks as though it's a huge block of marble and you can't move it. It's there blocking your way. But anization can be slowed down. It can be stopped and sometimes it can be reversed. You do talk about also militarization as a transforming process in that same way. And it goes far beyond war, far beyond 
mobilization for war or even pre-war, post-war, it's kind of an invisible web that spreads into every part of life. Can you try to describe it? Well, it's it's so apparent in the U.S. that people who visit the U.S. are stunned. I have Italian friends who, when they first came to the United States, they were in airports and they said, whoa, because civilian airlines, the counter people, they start calling your row who's going to be at the end of the plane and who's going to be at the upfront and so on. But they start off by saying people who need a little assistance to get on the plane, people with small children, they can go first and then active duty military as if they are the equivalent of the elderly and small children and need special help. Well, no, no, they need special privilege and they need airlines and all of us as civilian passengers to think, oh, that's right. Oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. We should honor them. And my Italian friends, and Italians know a thing or two about militarization, but they demilitarize themselves a lot more. They said, this is weird, is what they said. What is there going on in the United States that military active duty personnel, how come they're getting this privilege? And why is it that all the American civilians who are eager to get on the plane kind of just take it as if it's normal? Well, that's the militarization of all of us. It's the militarization of the airlines, but it's the militarization of Anybody in the waiting room who thinks, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like the emperor has no clothes. It's only when your Italian friend says, why are you so weird? Did you think, oh, you mean I've been so militarized that I don't realize how weird it is? And you can't explain it because you're so deeply militarized that you think it's normal. That would be about 2001. I'll bet if you went back and looked at people flying on American civilian planes in the 1990s. There was no special privilege for people in uniform. And it's part of the U.S. war on terror to heroicize a guy who, in fact, may be peeling potatoes on a base, but treat him like, you know, he's our savior. So you can point to the time when it happens. Yeah, it seems like we cycled through a number of these I mean, even, yes, 2001 and the war on terror was very specific, but there were there was Desert Storm before that yeah. and other sort of mobilizations. My hunch is the little window we as a society, we as citizens and civilians together had for reversing. We had two windows. One is after the failure of the U.S. military war in Vietnam. From about 75 to 79 or 80, the civilians in Congress lessened the defense budget, the military shrunk in terms of personnel numbers, the mail draft, what other people in the world called conscription, ended with a lot of really good things going on in the late 70s. But for a lot of people, they missed the militarization. And there were a lot of people who thought about reestablishing the pride in the military as something they needed to do 
Ronald Reagan as president really took that on, the remilitarization of American culture. And by the time you're really noticing it in the mid-80s, it's at a full gallop, mainly via anti-communism. Anti-communism as a commitment, anti-communism as a value, anti-communism as fighting against a nightmare, alleged nightmare, all of those fed it. And so a lot of ROTC programs, which are college Defense Department programs, were reestablished. The Defense Department in the 1990s began to introduce junior ROTC, which is the militarization of high school students and their parents, because parents have to agree. And so by the 1990s, we're in full gear here. One of the things that I watched for a while, the toy G.I. Joe, which is made by a profit-making company, the toy G.I. Joe sales dropped off in the late 70s. By the late 1990s and into the 2000s, it's not only that the G.I. Joe now was sold, but it was redesigned with more muscles. The early G.I. Joe is a little plastic figure with almost no muscles. By 2000, he looks like Mr. Atlas or something. So it's also the masculinization, but also Barbie joins the Air Force. So that's the militarization of childhood play. I mean, this is the bad news. You could militarize motherhood, play, high schools, marriage. You can militarize anything. And most of us, especially in the United States, if we don't have friends from other countries who say, you're weird. I mean, when you first came to the U.S., didn't you think a lot was really weird? I did. And I think about the Pledge of Allegiance you do (gasps) every morning. That struck me as a very military exercise. Yes. And so what? Okay, how old were you? Now we're outing everything. How old were you when you you first came to the U.S. and noticed this? 17. You must have been in school, right? Yeah, I was in high school. You had to do it. I was a foreign exchange student and I had to do it. So when you said to your new high school American friends, this is very strange. I I feel kind of weird doing this. I I wasn't religious, so the God in it was uncomfortable. Uh, I wasn't a citizen, so pledging allegiance to country was just, I actually learned to mouth it rather than say (gasps) it to stealthily get out of it. See, you were trying to resist militarization. Really? You said to any of your new American high school friends, isn't this a little strange? What did they say? I think everything was so strange to me. (laughs) Uh, The masculine nature of, because I went to this big sports school with a lot of football. What part of the country? In New Jersey, Southern New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, football. So that was the severe gender roles done by like sports. And many of my high school guy friends were going into the Marines straight out of high school. And in fact, the Pentagon, you know, it has a whole recruitment uh, branch. Um, Recruitment's big. And by the time you came, you see, there was no more male draft. That's right. The Pentagon, to keep up its numbers of recruits, had to persuade young men and their parents, their fathers and their mothers, to get them to enlist voluntarily. Whereas their fathers in the U.S. would have been subject to the draft going out of high school. Your guy friends in New Jersey high schools, they had to willingly join as volunteers 
So the Pentagon thinks about this all the time and they think about the gendering of sports. So I've got all kinds of things I want your listeners to do and then tell you and me what they find. They have to look at where the Pentagon puts their money for enlistment ads. They do not put them in tennis. I mean, if you watch the Open, you know, the tennis Open in Forest Hills, New York, the biggest tennis match in the U.S. advertising market, that is not where they're going to put their Marines ads. But also, they don't put them in baseball very much. They put them in NASCAR events and football. Because football in the United States, it doesn't have to be, but football is so vulnerable to militarization because of its uses of violence. Whereas the kind of masculinities that are on display in highly competitive tennis still are not quite the kinds of masculinities that the Defense Department thinks it needs in the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, or especially the Marines. So you are so overwhelmed by the gender weirdness in your New Jersey high school. You could barely notice the militarization. Absolutely. There was so much weirdness with the gender stuff. You should write down for yourself, just thinking back to your school exchange self as to what at the time, even if you couldn't explain it, just what seemed weird. That'll be a whole book. I can see it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It should be just called weird. Yes. <laughs> American weird. <laughs> yes. American weird. It's, it's what all the other kids that you were trying to become friends with, what was normal. Yes. I mean, that's how you normalize masculinization of certain things. That's how you normalize militarization, that it no longer seems weird. It seems normal so normal that you lose your curiosity about it. That's the key to militarizing something or to masculinizing it is the people who are performing it and who think it. It's so normal that they are no longer curious about it. It's why feminists are such nudges because feminists, I mean, I became a nudge, you know, feminists, when you become a feminist, anybody who becomes a feminist says, I don't get it. How come? And people say, well, it's just how it is. And then the feminist says, no, 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 I really mean it. You know, that's when the 12-year-old girl at Thanksgiving dinner says, I don't get it. I don't get why dad is always the one who's carving the turkey. I don't get it. Uh, Speaking of the militarization of everything and just kind of the odd places where it makes its way, You talk about the, not only is the war machine and the mobilization and all of that takes a militarization, but even so you have the anti-war movement, especially during the Vietnam War and the 60s and 70s, which you were talking about, and 80s even, had a very robust anti-war movement. But that was far from free from militarization as well. So I, I just want to talk about the paradoxical yes, n- it is nature paradoxical. of that. Yeah. And yeah. it's really thanks. It was a lot of black feminists who in the late 70s and early 80s began looking back at the anti-war movement and began looking at two things in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. 
and looking at the privileging of certain kinds of masculinities. This is now about masculinization and masculine privilege. If you read the new biography, wonderful new biography of Fanny Lou Hamer, who's one of my heroes, it's called Walk With Me. And Fanny Lou Hamer in Mississippi and waging, I don't know how she did it, but she really, she got so annoyed at all the male pastors claiming to be the leaders of the civil rights movement. And she was pretty critical as of African-American feminists past and present are of the privileging of the male pastor as the spokesperson for all African-Americans. So that's masculinization. And a lot of black feminists saw it in the anti-war movement and saw it in the civil rights movement. But one of the things they noticed was the use of confrontational tactics, that very confrontational kind of culture just on the brink of militarization. It, It wasn't necessarily with weapons, and it wasn't necessarily with deliberate use of violence, but it was a confrontational kind of culture with the assumption that confrontation made you seem stronger. And that's right on the brink of militarizing an anti-war movement. I have a very good colleague in South Korea, very influential Korean feminist named Insuk Kwan. And Insuk wrote a terrific study She's now in the national legislature in South Korea. And South Korea is almost as militarized as the U.S. Almost. We're kind of neck and neck. Insook did a study of the anti-military government movement, the pro-democracy movement, very successful pro-democracy movements in the 1980s. And she was part of it. She was a university student. And it was a successful pro-democracy movement that most of us haven't heard about, that actually succeeded in getting the military out of government. But when she went back, it takes guts to look at yourself critically. And Insook went back and looked at the South Korean successful pro-democracy, anti-military in government movement of the 1980s and said, but we were militarized. We threw Molotov cocktails. We put the men up front and put the women protesters in the back to make the Molotov cocktails. Then we passed them up front and we threw the Molotov cocktails at the militarized police that were charging us. And she said, that's not the way to build a genuine democracy that respects women as much as men. So you can militarize even causes that we think are good causes, if they embrace violence, if they privilege a certain kind of masculinity, and if they depend on a certain kind of hierarchical discipline, and if they construct their goals in terms of enemies. You do those four things, and you can militarize a movement that we would otherwise be deeply in favor of. But to realize it's happening when it's happening and to say, well, folks, that's not what we're up to here. One of the movements that really has been very critical, an anti-war movement, anti-militarism movement, is the Green and Common, women's peace encampment around the U.S. military missile base in southern England. And they 
really tried to think and rethink and rethink to make sure they weren't being militarized. It took a lot of arguments and debates and rethinking tactics. So for instance, one of the things they did, you can go online and look at Green and Common Women's Peace Encampment. And one of the photos you're almost certain to see, it's a beautiful, famous anti-militarist demonstration, but I'll tell you what the hitch is. Women in the dead of night, this was a highly protected U.S. military, but protected by British armed police base in southern England. In the dead of night, they figured out a way to climb over the barbed wire fence. Scores of women. And they went and they climbed up on what looks like a just a dirt mound, but it isn't. It's the dome of where you keep the nuclear-headed missiles in the moonlight. And the women went up on the mound and they danced. And there's a photograph, a very famous photograph of them dancing in the moonlight in the name of peace. They didn't hurt anybody. They simply embarrassed them because, of course, the U.S. military, oh my God, these women climb over, these women, they climb over the fence and our highly protected missile base and they climb over the fence and they dance on our missile silo, you know. That kind of brings, you said something or you wrote something, how militaries rely on women and presumptions of femininity. And so that really kind of goes to, we talked about masculinities before, but the presumption of femininity. Well, probably the most well-known presumption, which many of us, you know, we're in the middle now of Putin's aggressive war in Ukraine. And we have images every day of women with children escaping or trying to escape or being injured while trying to escape. And one of the things that is rife in all our cultures. Again, militarization is not peculiar to certain cultures. It happens in all kinds of cultures, which says patriarchy is deeper than a superficial culture. And that is women as the protected. That to be feminine, it's not only that women should accept their role as the protected, They should be grateful. And that is the militarization of gratitude. The feminization and militarization of women's gratitude. And it's not that one shouldn't be grateful for somebody who takes the risk to protect you. You know, we all went out and banged pots and pans during the pandemic to say how grateful we were to nurses, right? I mean, expressing gratitude is not itself a bad thing. It's when an entire culture is organized around women as women, showing their femininity. And you have to show your femininity because otherwise you are not a respectable woman. To show your appropriate femininity, you have to accept that you are the protected, not the protectors. And you have to be grateful to the manly men who protect you. And if you're in a whole societal system where you 
must be the grateful protected. It means you're the protected because you don't know how the world works. The thing about the masculinization of the protector is that it assumes that the protector, and of course this isn't true at all, but it assumes that the protector knows more about the world. The protected is not only grateful, but doesn't know much about the world. Knows how to still a crime child, maybe, but doesn't know about Putin's military strategy. Well, now we know that most men who act like protectors, they don't know anything about Russian politics either, but they get to presume it because they're the protector. And so the feminization, that is the wielding of femininity for the sake of convincing women and girls that they mainly in life are to be protected. Now, the thing is, again, in a non-patriarchal world, you act as a protector when you can, any way you can. The patriarchal way of organizing the world is that you are the protector because you're a man or a boy. You're the man of the household now, mother says to the 12-year-old boy who's just lost his father. And the protector makes decisions. The protected follows somebody else's decisions. Now, the reality is, when you look at all the photographs and read all the very, very good reporting that is coming out of Ukraine, one of the things you realize is that the women who are taking responsibility for children and for older vulnerable people, they are protectors. I mean, if you ask most 26-year-old men, you've got a choice, Charlie. You've got a choice as to whether you don't want to do it. You've never done it. You don't know how to handle a gun. You have a choice to go for rifle training and be with a group of guys to be in the Ukrainian Volunteer Defense Force. Or, Charlie, you can take three-year-old Ivan and five-year-old Maritza, and you can be responsible for feeding them, stopping them from crying, protecting them for the next three weeks. Which do you think Charlie will choose? So I look at women, and and I use the phrase women and their dependent children. I deliberately try not to use the very common phrase women and children, because it I've written it in some places as one word, women and children, because it turns women into children. But it also it disguises the extent to which women and their dependent children are making decisions every minute, are taking risks every minute, and are doing hard, not just emotional work, hard physical work to protect two young children. And so I say women and their dependent children as refugees, as internally displaced people to make more visible what it's like to be a woman trying to protect vulnerable children. I think at the root of a lot of the militarization of femininity is to make unquestioned the notion that women are the protected and that men are the protectors. And I don't think, I should add this very quickly, I don't think that women going into their government's armed forces is the main way to challenge that. I do want to get into that. You know, there's women in the military and there's women 
and the military. And those are two different militarization stories. It also struck me about, you know, your story about the Ukrainian choice that these women who protect their dependent children are heroes, but they're not afforded the hero title, whereas the man is, and that he's making a choice that will get him that title. Even uh, if he's not doing it for the benefits. That's Society, that's all of us, will accord him that heroic status afterwards. That's why post-war is so, who gets the statue? And who gets the benefits, by the way? Who gets the pension? And so that really does bring us back to how should we all think about women in militaries? A lot of women who join militaries young, just like young men, they join at a young age. And a lot of women, and this is not just in 2022, it was in 1914. Well, actually it was in 1862 in the U.S. Civil War. They want to be heroes. You know, a lot of 18-year-old girls who ask why their dad is the one who's carving the turkey, they want to be heroes, and they know how heroism works. They want to be protectors. And society's message is the only way that you'll ever be treated as a hero, the only way young 18-year-old, ambitious, energetic young woman, you'll ever get to be a hero, and the only way you'll ever be recognized as having the skills and the capacities to be the protector is to join the government's military. And of course, ever since all these governments have ended the male draft, they need enough women, not too many, enough young women to think that's the only way I can be a hero. It's the only way I can be physically adventurous. It's the only way I can be recognized as a protector. I have to join the government's military because most militaries now need not too many, but especially young women who've completed high school and maybe a couple of years of college because militaries now need a lot of math and literacy skills. But So they need about uh, 12 to 16%, not too many more, because then guys won't want to join. Guys do not aspire to be bank tellers anymore because it looks like a feminized job. But they will, if the women are kept kind of in their place and, you know, 16% or less, and be better if they weren't in very visible positions. But if women can be kept at about 16% of the uniformed active duty force, then it's still attractive to guys because it's 84% guys. And it could still be a place where you can earn as a 19-year-old or your status as a masculine guy. Let it get up to 20%. Not so attractive to that high school kid who played football now wants to be a Marine. So military, and they think about this all the time. They are constantly, they don't want us to know because they never want us to know they're strategizing about masculinity and femininity, but they're doing it all the time. Every time they design a uniform, They're doing it. Where to put the pockets? Oh, my God. And really, they're so nervous about where to put pockets on women's uniforms. (laughs) Really, they had a whole debate. As they should. (laughs) As they should. About where to put the pockets. They never put the pockets where we want the pockets. Right? Right? But 
They do debate it, but they don't want us to know that they're so nervous about femininity and masculinity and how to get it just right. If it begins to look like bank tellers, it's not so attractive to the very impressionable New Jersey high school football player who's thinking about, should I go in the Marines or not? So what we're seeing is the result of very many decisions, very clear strategies. This is talked about a lot, contemplated a lot. It's not an unintended consequence. The kinds of men who have to be militarized for a modern military are lots of different kinds of masculinities because you do have to have the high tech person. You do have to have the science nerd. And you do have to have the combat guy. So it's just to remind ourselves that while we think G.I. Joe is the main with all his muscles, plastic muscles, while we may think that's the archetype of militarized manhood, it is actually also the physicist who designs bombs. It is also the engineer, civilian, militarized engineer who designs drones. So the contemporary military requires a lot of different kinds of masculinities. So that's also true of the sorts of women it needs nowadays. You need several thousand women, young women who want to join the military because they've got more education than most guys their age. So you now need them because you don't have the male draft anymore. Russia still has the male draft. Turkey still has the male draft. South Korea has the male draft. But most countries have given up conscription. Therefore, they they take what they can get from the guys and they need women because they have more education. But as you said, what I realized when I began thinking about who are all the different kinds of women that a government and its military, who are all the kinds of women they need to control to do the war waging and preparing for war in peacetime that they think they need. Governments really depend for militarization on women not thinking very much. And the good news is it's really hard to stop women from thinking. You can't stop us from thinking. Yeah. That makes, it makes all the patriarchs nervous. So keep thinking. We shall. And talking. And talking. Yes, and talking. And, talking and exchanging and sharing yes. and strategizing. Yes. Well, thank you so very much for talking to me. It was an absolute pleasure meeting you and talking with you. Oh, this is a pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness.